Good morning. So, why El Salvador? What is it about this place and these people that draws us in and keeps us engaged? I first heard about El Salvador in the mid-70s while working with a carpenter's helper named Carlos here in DC. We became friends and still are. Back then, I don't think I could have found El Salvador on a map if my life depended on it. El Salvador is tiny, about the size of Rhode Island. It's one of the poorest and the most densely populated country in the Americas. Half the people have no clean drinking water. Lust for gold brought the army of Cortez and the scourge of smallpox to the region in 1532. It took years of fighting to subjugate the people who lived there, mostly Maya and Pipil. The global economy arrived in the late 18th century when indigo was planted for export to Europe. Large farms were established, displacing the small farmers, the campesinos. By the mid-19th century, indigo was out, and coffee was king, as tiny El Salvador became the third largest coffee exporter in the world. After independence, all common lands, once protected by the Spanish crown, were abolished and sold by decree. The owners of the great haciendas became wealthy, politically powerful, and extremely conservative. The dispossessed campesinos were abused, overworked, and paid pennies a day for their labor. They revolted repeatedly. In response, the military took over the government. In 1932, an estimated 30,000 campesinos, most of Mayan descent, were slaughtered. This became known as La Matanza, the massacre. By the early 1950s, campesinos, trade unionists, students, and intellectuals were pushing for democratic rights and free elections. They formed what became known as the popular organizations. The US sent aid to the government, most of it earmarked for the military. In the 1970s, the army killed hundreds of demonstrators in the plazas of the capital. Those opposed to the government began to be disappeared, their tortured bodies tossed on the streets. A pivotal moment came when the communist priest, Oscar Romero, emerged. Romero, never a Marxist, began as a staunch conservative. Only after he was appointed Archbishop of San Salvador and saw the deplorable conditions that the poor lived under, did he move towards liberation theology, preaching that the poor deserve justice in the here and now and not simply in the world to come. During this period, in 1978, West member John Taylor met Monsignor Romero on the grounds of his small chapel in San Salvador. On March 23, 1980, Romero broadcast an appeal to the common soldiers to lay down their arms and stop killing their countrymen. The following day, he was shot through the heart while saying mass in his chapel. Today, people throughout Central and South America revere Oscar Romero in much the same way as Martin Luther King or Gandhi. Soon after Romero's murder, five left-wing groups merged to form the FMLN with the goal of overthrowing the government. A real civil war had begun. Military aid from the US skyrocketed to a million and a half dollars a day even though the army and the death squads were committing atrocities on a daily basis. Meanwhile, FMLN guerrillas 
began kidnapping and even killing the wealthy, extorting ransoms to build their war chest. Land reform, favored by the Carter administration, was like poison to the large landowners. At a meeting in the Sheraton Hotel in San Salvador, two U.S. labor representatives and the Salvadoran head of agrarian reform were gunned down in broad daylight. Later, four U.S. nuns who had been working for social justice were raped and murdered by Army soldiers. The National Trade Union office was bombed. Six priests, their housekeeper and her daughter, were dragged from their rooms at the Jesuit University of Central America and shot to death. Later, the infamous Atlacal Brigade, whose leader was trained at Fort Benning, Georgia, was found responsible. That same brigade massacred 733 mostly women and children in the rural village of Masote. Despite the crescendo of documented atrocities, U.S. aid to the military increased. The Reagan administration was opposed to any negotiations that might end the carnage. It was the Cold War. We had to stop the communists at our back door, the logic went, or soon they'd be in Texas. Whole regions became uninhabitable war zones. In March of 1981, 7,000 people in the canton of Santa Marta, where our sister community El Rodeo is located, were warned that the army was coming to burn them out. This was a huge military operation. Within hours, they began their forced exodus across the Lempa River into Honduras. Esperanza Ramos, the mother of my host family in El Rodeo, described it to me this way in July. We were bombed and strafed from the air, and mortars were fired on us. We crossed the Lempa at night while the guerrillas fought the army to buy time. The army destroyed everything. I could not swim, but a man with a small log helped me and my son across. We put up ropes to help people cross, but the army opened the floodgates and washed away the ropes and many people drowned. We were gathered there like a beehive. The Honduran soldiers were shooting at us from the other side until the internationals from the UN came with white flags. I arrived across the river with only my skirt and my boy. Esperanza lived in the Honduran refugee camps for 10 years. She returned to El Rodeo in 1992. Our tax dollars provided the planes, bombs, military trainers, and advisors that made this devastation possible. Finally, after 13 years and over 70,000 deaths, peace came. At the UN-sponsored peace talks in 1992, a modest land reform was instituted. The national police was reconstituted with soldiers from both sides, and elections were planned. The leftist FMLN fighters disarmed and became a legal political party. The Arena Party, founded by Death Squad commander Roberto Dabuisson, won the election. Arena held the presidency and controlled the legislature for the next 16 years. Meanwhile, thousands of people fled a life of grinding poverty for the U.S. Of seven million Salvadorans, nearly three million now live here. The earnings they send back, the remesas, are 18% of the GDP of El Salvador. We know these people. They're carpenters and masons and doctors and professionals, 
cooks and clerks, maids and musicians, former army soldiers, and former guerrillas. In March of last year, for the first time, the FMLN fielded a moderate candidate for the presidency, Mauricio Funes. A popular TV journalist, he represented hope and change. Sound familiar? The FMLN was outspent by Arena by an estimated 10 to 1 margin. Uh, we were there, my, my wife Beth and I were there. You, you wouldn't believe the campaign over the top. We were there as election observers and we witnessed this historic transition. Funes now heads a progressive administration with a nationwide approval rating of 80%. We are entwined with the people of this small country like no other. El Salvador is a very beautiful place with a very tragic history. Go there and you will find some of the warmest, most welcoming people that you will ever meet. You won't hear Yankee go home in El Salvador. What you are likely to hear is, do you know anyone in Langley Park? Or Manassas? Or Rockville? My brother is there working. Or my daughter, mi primo, mi tia. We miss them. It was nice to meet you. And good luck with your work here. George Taylor will now tell you a little about his experience this summer in the village of El Rodeo. Thank you, Ross. Hi, everyone. I was one of the two teens on the West delegations to El Salvador. At first, I didn't want to go on the trip, but my dad wanted me to go because he thought it would be something good for me. So I went. When we arrived in the El Rodeo, the first thing that came to my mind was that there were a lot more kids than adults. There are 30 families, 28 houses, and about 80 kids. I made a connection with a lot of people in the El Rodeo community by playing soccer with most of the kids, and those kids would invite me to their houses to meet their parents. I felt safe, nurtured, and loved by everyone I met in the community. I had an experience to be in a different culture and surroundings that not many teens get to experience. I had the, I had, the bond I had with the community was like a scar on me where I couldn't and wouldn't want it to go away. Every day we had a group meeting in the afternoons and we would do a go around and say something. One time I said, I feel like I'm at home here and I wish I could live here. The first day there I talked to Maria Cruz and Harrison for at least a good two and a half hours. Maria Cruz is a teen starting to become a teacher to help her people out, and Harrison is a teen who dropped out of fifth grade to help his parents support their family. In those two and a half hours, we were just exchanging stories and information and getting to know each other better. My second day there, it hit me that I'm only here for a week, and I've already built a connection with almost everyone here. My friends started asking me questions on when would I come back and for how long I would stay. On my third day, I played soccer with them, and then, I, and they asked me again to play in a tournament with them. But unfortunately, it was in the morning we were leaving. One thing I learned about the people in the community was that their parents want their kids to have more options and a better life than what they had. The kids make their own decisions, but what I've realized is that their main priority is their family, and they make that their top concern. I think the best thing we can do for them is broaden the kids' opportunity for their future. By that, I mean support their schools, improve roads, have more delegation trips, which allows us to 
help with the resources they need. With our assistance, they can fulfill their potential and create a better atmosphere for everyone to enjoy life. Thank you. Here's Peggy talking about the process. Thank you, George. One of the benefits of participating in a service delegation is the opportunity to get, our no get to know our wonderful young people. What I learned about George is that he's not just a helpful person. He is proactively helpful. He is always one step ahead of what needs to be done, anticipating and just going ahead and doing it. He was an awesome travel mate. So let me take you on a journey. To get to the tiny community of El Rodeo, you travel east from the capital city on the Central American Highway. Just beyond Lake Ilopango, you leave the highway and pass through the towns of Ilobasco, Sensuntepeque. The road narrows as it climbs into the mountains. Arriving in Victoria, you feel like you're on top of the world. On gravel roads, you pass through the village of Santa Marta. Then a rutted road takes you to the community, the tiny community of El Rodeo, where 28 homes are connected by a web of narrow footpaths. Quite a journey. Actually, it's a journey which began in 1998 with the formation of International Partners, a West Social Justice Committee created so that West members could support community development projects around the globe. Worthy projects were identified and West members contributed the money to make it happen. Early projects were located in the Philippines and Ethiopia. When John Taylor and Paula Beckman joined the committee, they looked for projects closer to home. John had been a Peace Corps volunteer in El Salvador, so he reactivated his contacts there. In 2000, the first adult delegation traveled to El Salvador, their mission to identify projects. My participation with international partners began in 2002 as I sat in a circle surrounded by West's coming-of-age graduates, eager to do something to make the world a better place. They were jazzed by the idea of spending part of their summer traveling to El Salvador, contributing their sweat to improving the lives of others. As the Sunday School director, I was eager to support them as a service delegation is an ideal curriculum for ethical education. It's an opportunity to walk the talk of ethical culture, to embody our values and directly experience why we work for justice. I accompanied that first service delegation and continued doing so for the next four summers. By 2007, international partners had grown and become a separately incorporated non-governmental organization. IP founder and West senior leader Don Montagna retired. During the interim between Don's retirement and Amanda's arrival, the Global Connections Committee was created to evaluate our delegation experiences, 
research models for international engagement, and to reimagine how we might do social justice work in El Salvador. What did we glean from our discernment? Hands down, the most powerful part of each delegate's experience is personal transformation. Transformation forged through the relationships that develop as the result of living with a family in their home, sleeping in their bed, bathing at their pila, directly experiencing their reality. By the end of their stay, delegates feel deeply connected and filled with the desire to stay connected. They're already planning their next re return to come back. What were the ahas from looking at models for international engagement? People are drawn to religious community by the desire, the deep need to be in community and part of something larger than oneself. Through seeking connection, we are not alone in the world. We are part of the whole, and we become whole. Ethical culture is a religion which places ethics and relationships at the center. International service delegations provide an opportunity for relationship across lines of difference, across borders, and over time in solidarity. Therefore, the relationship-centered sister community model seemed like a perfect fit. We re-envisioned our international social justice work, shifting from a bricks-and-mortar-centered model to a relationship-centered model based on participatory processes. Ross and I had the good fortune to meet with Clark University professor Dr. Richard Ford, one of the founders of the community capacity building process. Our committee received training from his colleague, Eileen Higgins, former Peace Corps director in Belize. Sean will describe how we used a participatory process to craft our partnership agreement with El Rodeo. What makes an international experience transformative and so important in the ethical, dilemma, ethical development of a young person or a person of any age. A service delegation is by its nature an adventure, taking us out of the ordinary. It is also a journey, an outer journey to a place as well as an inner journey. When we unplug from our iPods, cell phones, and computers, we leave behind our everyday routines and distractions. We are freed to interact with the world in a different way. We are freed to fully engage. Traveling to another country and being immersed in another culture forces us out of our comfort zone, beyond the familiar, and into the world of the other. We learn and relearn history through the stories and testimony of those who lived it. 
We learn about economic and racial disparity and begin to understand its causes. Our eyes now view the world through a new lens, our minds now able to understand the world from the perspective of the other. And through engaging with the other, we realize there is no other. There is Chepe, a farmer who grows corn and beans on steep mountain slopes, sowing the seed with a pointed stick, harvesting with a machete, doing so as it has been done for hundreds or thousands of years. There is Vitalina, the single mother of five sons, who is an anti-mining educator and activist, risking her life each time she speaks about the devastating environmental consequences of mining. There is Marcella, Esperanza's daughter, born in the Mesa Grande refugee camp. Mari, now 26, works as an on-air news reporter at Radio Victoria and is the mother of two-year-old Isel. These are really smart, dedicated, hardworking people born into the poverty of a war-torn country. When we get to know these amazing people and directly experience their reality, it affects us profoundly. Delegation after delegation, I have witnessed young hearts being cracked open by compassion grown so large. Hearts can't contain it. Over and over again, I've witnessed North American youth come to understand their place of privilege in the world and embrace a sense of personal responsibility to use their privilege to work for justice. Because as ethical culturists, that's what we do. Walking our talk, living our values, learning, growing, transforming. And isn't this one of the ways that we change the world through transforming ourselves? During our final evening in El Rodeo, of course, there was a fiesta. It poured so hard the rain sounded like thunder. Despite the deluge, the community arrived dressed in their finest clothing. We played multi-generational games and made fools of ourselves. We watched the children as they performed, feasted on simple foods, and celebrated the signing of our partnership agreement. Members of the community shared words of love and, and gratitude. Then it was our turn. Ross, our ever-eloquent statesman, shared beautiful words conveying our appreciation and solidarity. The young people called for George to speak. And when he came forward, he was flooded with emotion. The words wouldn't come. 
he sat down, held his head in his hands, and wept. His friends immediately surrounded him, placing their hands on his head and shoulders. Looking into his eyes, they told him how much they loved him, how much it meant to them that he had come to visit their village. They asked him, when are you coming back? In George's earlier remarks, he said, the bond I had with the community was like a scar on me, where I couldn't and wouldn't want it to go away. Indeed, many indigenous cultures practice scarification. The scar is the outward sign that the person has gone through a transformation. We bear the scar, changing the world through transforming ourselves. And now, it is my deep honor to introduce Sean Taff-Morales. Here at West, Sean is one of our teen advisors. In El Salvador, Sean co-facilitated the community meetings and was one of our translators. I deeply appreciate Sean's skills as a facilitator and collaborator, and he too was an awesome travel mate. So already during this platform, you've heard a lot about El Salvador. You've heard about El Rodeo, the connections that we've all made down there, and the connections that we hope to extend to all of you as our community here at WES. And if you've talked to or if you've seen Ross out in the hall all month long, you know about the huge range of pressing needs in El Salvador and in our sister community. You've already raised enough money to buy water filters that will provide clean water for every family in the school in El Rodeo for years to come. Maybe you've sent letters protesting gold mining and the massive lawsuits against El Salvador. But what I want to talk to you now is what I see as the most important part of what, or rather how, we do our work. And it's something that is uniquely Wes. One of the first things that I learned, and now one of the first things that I tell people about ethical culture, is that we work to elicit the best in ourselves and in each other. And when we do that together in community, we create something that is truly powerful. And that is what we want to do in El Rodeo. We want to help elicit their best, and in doing so, bring out the best in each of us. Not charity, but something that will work to elicit and to create lasting change. What we want to do is called community capacity building, and it's, at its core is the idea that communities can join together to develop their own community and to lead efforts to alleviate their own poverty. The basic idea is that we work together. We help the entire community share stories, share facts, share all of their knowledge with each other and with us. We identify problems. We come up with solutions. We made an action plan to start addressing the problem of potable water. We made maps. We drew up timelines of El Rodeo and of Wes. We established pen pal relationships with some of our Sunday school children, with children in the community of El Rodeo. And that was just in one short trip. I could go on and on about any of the activities that we did, but I'm just going to tell one story of how we wrote our community partnership agreement. 
So we plan all of this with the, the existing leadership of the community, the ADESCO, the Asociación de Desarrollo Comunitario, the Community Development Association. It's recognized by the government of El Salvador. Every community has one, and it's really the, the closest, the smallest form of local government that you'll find in the country. So, to get, <clears throat> so together with the ADESCO, we call a community meeting. We run out in the truck, we buy bags of cookies, but the bakery in neighboring Santa Marta is closed, so we end up running around to four or five, Pam and I, four or five different little tiendas, and we buy up their entire stock until we think we might be able to supply everyone. Two women from the community make this huge vat of coffee for everyone, and we meet in the school. Again, it's pouring down rain. The school is the only building that's even close enough to house all of us, but still we're packed in like sardines. Everyone isn't there, but there is a huge and very diverse representation of the community. Elders, youth, the innumerable youngest children are downstairs with some uh, very brave volunteers, including George, um, doing arts and crafts, playing games, screaming really, really loudly. <laughs> it's huge, it's a huge event just to have a gathering like this with so many people represented. So to start off, Mari, my co-facilitator from the ADESCO, and I explain the idea of a paper agreement to everyone. We talk about how that we as communities are gonna work together and the role that the ADESCO already plays as leadership in the community, but how this agreement will be stronger for every voice that lends to its creation and how this agreement will only be valid if it truly comes from all of them. Then we hand everyone, delegation and El Rodeo alike, a note card. On one side, you put three things that you want to promise from your community to the other. On the other side, you put three things that you want promised from the other community to you. They can be anything you want. I ask who can write. We pair up many of the younger men and women, some of whom learned how to, learned how to read and write, grew up in the, in the schools in the refugee camp, the popular education schools, with those who can't, including many of the older women who were never taught to read. The openness and willing to give, willingness to give is so apparent in this step, but it takes a little longer to get people to ask for what they need and to ask for what's really important, but they do. The next step is for everyone to group off in pairs. These pairs read their cards to each other, they discuss, and they decide which of the points that they have are the most salient. Between them, what's most important? Then they write down a new list, they compile a new list based on what they've both come up with. Then two of these groups get together and they do the same thing. And we're talking about a group of 75 plus people here, so it takes a while to get it down, but we end up with two lists, one from the delegation and one from the community. We read those final two lists and ask everyone, does that list represent you? Is there anything missing? Is there anything that you wanted in there that, that isn't? And then we present them to each other. We present our list to El Rodeo, and El Rodeo presented their list to us. And it's really amazing, and I wanna stress this, just how much our lists really matched up. El Rodeo is a community that really does get us as Wes. And it's an incredible match that we've been able to find. So at the end, we have one list that everyone agrees on. We go through, and every single, we had this one list that everyone agreed to, and every single person in the room had an equal hand in its making. 
A few of us go off and wordsmith, but we don't change the content at all. We write out the agreements in English and in Spanish. One big paper, you can see them back there. We leave one copy in each language for each community. One for us and one for Rodeo. The next night, the night before we leave, every single person comes and signs their name, makes their mark, or puts a thumbprint. And instead of being recipients in charity, they all become the authors of their own development, and together, we took up that responsibility and that burden. And I know at that moment, we were all in tears. So I hope I've been able to convey a little bit of what this type of work feels like. And we want to invite you all to go read that agreement and look at the signatures on the page and think of what they represent. And this is still just the groundwork for so much more to come, like that tiny first step of water filters that all of us at West can now supply to El Rodeo, delegations that we'll send in the future, and so much more that I cannot wait to see. So thank you all for being part of that. <laughs>